Welcome to Positive Sum. My name is Scott Harvey, and this episode was inspired by the many historical events in the United States over the recent months since the 2020 presidential election. As one who will inherit many of today's issues, this episode marks a major transition for me. The acronym WTF is the title of this episode for a reason. It's how I feel right now about the status quo. With that being said, it will be unlike future episodes. There will be a lot of information I don't unpack, because you will soon see I was quite emotional while I was recording. However, the broader issues, topics, and themes discussed will be pursued in greater depth in the coming weeks and months while I attend college full-time. Thus, without further ado, I hope you find this inaugural episode a nice taste of what is to come. Thank you and enjoy. Today is January 12th, 2021. And six days ago, January 6th, 2021, we'll live in infamy, ad infinitum. The siege on the Capitol by Trump and his zealots is treasonous. A handful of people have died, thus Trump has blood on his hands. For the sake of our democracy, Trump must be impeached by the House. And tomorrow, it will happen. But there is doubt concerning whether he will be convicted by the Senate. Even though the Democrats will have a very slim majority, they still need 17 Republicans to sign on and convict Trump in order to prevent him from holding office ever again. If the Senate does not follow through and do what it should, the president will be above the law and the impeachment process will lose legitimacy as a way to keep the president in check, not only now, but way into the future. He must pay for what he did. He did not uphold his oath to the Constitution when he publicly and literally incited the insurrection at the Capitol. Members of Congress and all those who were publicly inciting this violence prior to the riot in front of the White House should be held accountable. They should go to jail. They should not be able to hold office or be able to reap any benefits from this society ever again. They are traitors. This must not be ignored or treated lightly. The history books will be written one day and will describe how leaders in favor of justice acted in response. However long it takes until the next Trump-like populist rises to power, he or she will exploit any insufficient response leaders today, politicians today, will take to their advantage. He or she will corrupt the institutions they interact with for their own gain, further deteriorating our democratic system. That's why they must be strong, and consequences must be doled out to maintain their sanctity to 
restore trust, to restore justice. There has been so much injustice that needs to be set right, and this is a first step towards that. We must act now because all rioters and all politicians and all funders that made this happen should be held responsible and treated as traitors to the degree they made this deadly assault happen. The damage done last week is symbolic of nihilistic ideals that have become popularized in this post-truth world we live in. Recently, I read a piece from the New York Times that plainly said that post-truth is pre-fascist. It's very hard to grasp the historical significance of that while living in the moments right now, but regardless, I can't stay silent anymore. And I must, I must say what I have to say today. This nihilistic attitude was stoked by Trump. It wasn't caused by him, but he amplified it for his own personal gains which is simply to um, overturn the election so that, you know, he doesn't lose. So he is safe from any sort of criminal cases that are in the works. And as I said, Trump is not the root cause. He is a symptom of this trend, this nihilistic trend in American society. And so as the first episode of my podcast, I had originally decided to condemn this trend as a result of the leaked phone call between Trump and the Georgia Secretary of State over a week ago. Now it feels like pebbles compared to the siege on the Capitol, yet both are attempts to undermine the sanctity of American democracy. Even though it is deeply flawed, it still works. And um, thankfully, both have been mentioned in the articles of impeachment that are going to be used to impeach Trump the second time. This is very deeply, um, this is deeply, deeply, deeply troublesome for me because growing up, um, learning about American history in high school, I remember my teacher proudly taking an entire class period to talk about why the U.S. democracy is so special. He declared that not once in over 200 years had A sitting president denied the peaceful transfer of power to the next president-elect. This precedent was set by George Washington when he voluntarily stepped down after two terms. These occurrences prove that we can no longer claim this tradition to be true. We cannot hold this tradition and take it for granted. It has been 
bastardized like so much of recent history. Trump's dishonesty and desire to overturn the election has caused bloodshed. A handful of citizens and one Capitol Police officer have been killed, and I think about a dozen or more officers were injured and sent to the hospital. Moreover, a neck, not a neck, but a noose was erected near the Capitol building, and some who made it inside the Capitol building were calling for the deaths of Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence. Today, I listened to a podcast called Pod Save America, and the episode they released yesterday on the 11th mentioned how merely luck saved us. Luck prevented the deaths of Congress people and senators alike prevented the destruction, the ir- the irredeemable destruction of our Capitol building. We are so lucky that we must treat this event as if, as if people died that were elected officials, as if the Capitol building was burnt down, because in spirit it was It was an act of war. To me, it seems like... It seemed like these rioters, these traitors, were living up to a fantasy. They were living out a fantasy so divorced from liberal reality, but right on point with conservative... um, with conservatism, or just simply Trumpism. Um, the narrative of freedom at all costs, the narrative that um, if they don't fight like hell, they won't have a country. And so they did. They followed Trump's word, and they did so even at the cost of democracy. So, even though I am young, I will inherit this mess well after the leaders of today retire and pass on. And regardless of my age, I choose not to sit idly by and wait for older generations to take leadership and hold those responsible fully to account. This has to stop, and it has to stop now. I cannot stand by and let this this current status quo continue to exploit all the value in my home country. Countless millions have sacrificed way too much in the name of making America America more fair, just, and equal. Beginning with the Revolutionary War, then the Civil War, then the Civil Rights Movement, and now with the modern progressive movement, and everything in between. Many have sacrificed everything so that we could be better and we must be better. Thus, I reject the status quo in all forms, including politics, business, and with regards to social norms. 
They are riddled in exploitation, ideology, and racism. And they must change. And anyone who, who dares, who dares to behave like those imbeciles that stormed the Capitol deserves punishment. They are traitors. And anyone that sides with them is a traitor. So, a two-party system, this duopoly between Democrats and Republicans, does not work. We need ranked choice voting in some way, shape, or form. Shareholder maximization, as promoted by Milton Friedman, is inherently exploitative and incentivizes managers away from the true social purpose of a firm. And this true social purpose of a firm is to add value equally to shareholders, customers, and employees instead of just to maximize shareholder wealth. Finally, the historic caste system in the United States, as explained by Isabel Wilkerson in her new book, Caste, is in my opinion the concrete phenomenon undergirding the unconscious bias, the white privilege, and the systematic racism that many talk about. Simply put, everyone must have equal access to the opportunities to prosper in any form they wish. Moreover, all opportunities must be positive sum instead of zero sum or negative sum. Finally, gatekeeping must end because, of the, because the lifestyles of those in the 1% are unsustainable. And even those at the intellectual top, those are unsustainable too. Secondary, post-secondary education is ripe for disruption. You are correct to feel threatened by a more equal society because you have become accustomed to wealth you do not deserve and it's not fair to have. And for you academics out there, this ideological gatekeeping, especially economists, when it comes to neoclassical economics, shame on you. Shame on you. Thus, with these initial examples, I wish to take a stand and take ownership of the world in which we live in um, in order to make it better. Enough is truly enough. We cannot afford to continue on this path of wasteful materialism, exploitative free market and shareholder capitalism, a dysfunctional political duopoly and an invisible caste system. I'm really tired of all the exploitation and manipulation it has no place anymore. I choose what happens. And when I say I, I mean, I'm talking about Gen Z and millennials and anyone else who wishes to uh, join this fight because we need more opportunity than what is currently, currently being considered by those in power. No one has the right to exploit others, especially if they take a Rawlsian veil of ignorance perspective on other groups of people in the current present and with respect to the future. 
Life is inherently messy, and your current position in life should not be guaranteed by any birthright. So, so please, show some humility and grace. Yet time and time again, I am, Paul, I am personally appalled by the injustice that befall justices that that the injustices that befall upon people such as the victims of Harvey Weinstein, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Rosa Parks, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and countless others, countless, countless millions if not billions of others. Today we live in a post-truth world. Um, because different groups of people are able to receive different underlying facts about the reality of situations. This is rightfully, this is highly influenced by the echo chambers. Modern media has developed on cable, social media, and the internet. As a result, these terrorists and traitors have stormed the Capitol building yesterday. These people, these people that stormed the Capitol building yesterday, are largely victims of a broader trend, even though they, are, they, they rightfully deserve punishment. This trend is the bastardization of the necessary institutions in our society by powerful elites mostly aligned with the Republican Party. Now, one would perceive that Silicon Valley would be more liberal, but Wall Street has ensured that in order to obtain funding and funding and survive as companies, these companies need to turn need to double in size frequently by maximizing profit, maximizing shareholder wealth. If any of you have seen the Netflix documentary, The Social The Social Dilemma, you will know how addictive social media and technology have been engineered to be. You will also know that the ad-based model is highly exploitative and that you are in fact the product, not the app or the technology, the hardware, I should say. This bastardization of necessary institutions that are crucial to our democracy, crucial to the fabric holding people together, maintaining trust and recipro reciprocity of obligations. These things are creating divisions. They have left many disenfranchised and alienated from modern society. Now, it's not just, it's not just big tech. There are many more involved, many more forces involved. Groupthink took over globalization efforts and proponents made it seem like it would be an absolute good, that there would be no harm. Uh, meanwhile, among many other factors, wages have been unprecedentedly suppressed by cheap labor abroad. The disillusion of private unions suppressed their ability to collectively bargain for better wages and, uh, and benefits, as well as unprecedented innovation in the knowledge economy have destabilized American society unlike ever before. Is this who we are as a society? Are the vast majority of people in this country supposed to be serfs, to be exploited? 
or are the vast majority expected to have an easy opportunity to achieve the so-called American dream? Are people expendable and do they never deserve a second chance in life if they happen to fail due to unforeseen circumstances out of their control? Life is messier than the narratives we have been telling ourselves over the numerous decades since the beginning of the modern political movements dominating our mainstream parties. Healthcare should not be tied to one's job. This is plainly put extortion and should stop because we all treat it as a right for ourselves and our loved ones. Healthcare is so important that it seems to me that it creates undue stress for people who have access to it, access to quality healthcare um, through their job, that if they lose their job and jeopardize their family's health and security, they jeopardize breaking up the family. This ought not be the case for parents. Ensuring the mental health and proper development of one's child is hard enough. To continue to continue to ensure the added pressure of obtaining health care presents two different perspectives to me. The first is that some may think that uh, the, so, uh, the status quo is good enough and that obtaining quality and affordable health care is plentiful because there are plenty of jobs that offer this benefit. The second is that quality and affordable health care is only reserved for the largest firms, which also happen to be the most competitive firms in the world. They seem to be reserved for Ivy League graduates at any level of post-secondary education, leaving the rest of the country with mediocre insurance that really offers no value in return. Instead of having a cheap copay or a manageable deductible, it is possible that they, that they have neither. So it begs the question, what is the point of deeming healthcare a privilege that is best offered through one's employers? As one who's at the older age, older end of the spectrum um, of the generation of generation Z. I spent nearly all of my cognitively aware life after the Great Recession in 2007 through 2009. I was in fifth grade when Obama was elected and my, my teachers were very excited about it. In fact, the, the classmate of mine was from Chicago, had moved there that year, and coincidentally, she knew Obama's daughters from the school she went to. This gave her a reasonable social capital, of course, and it was very cool, I thought. What I did not realize at the time was how close the United States was to total and utter collapse, as well as the entire country, uh, entire globe the entire global economy. So fast forward 10 years and I should say 12 years and the COVID crisis and the siege on the Capitol have blown America's dirty laundry globally and I feel utterly embarrassed. I'd rather not claim to be an American and if things do not improve, I am seriously contemplating moving abroad I want to be happy in life, not endlessly toiling because I have to in order to survive.
I don't want to be entrapped by my job because I have to. I want healthcare to be free. I want it to be free so we can focus on more important things in life. I want to have security in life. And this is not the same as cradle-to-grave welfare, as some may put it. But it is merely compassion for others and understanding that life is messy and unfair at times without the added fuel created by evil actors. Moreover, this philosophy must be followed up by institutions to provide the necessary synergies to make life easier in a pragmatic fashion. Ideology should not become a thing anymore because they're antiquated in this digital age. We must normalize nuance during daily communication and public discourse if we want to create this pragmatic reality. As one who has ambitious goals in life, I find it difficult to believe in anything greater than myself anymore. I want to be patriotic, but the old arguments do not work anymore. They're antiquated as well. And a bit ideological. There's no reason to believe that America is as exceptional as I was once taught to believe. In fact, we are deeply flawed, and we are just like any other country. We got lucky. We got lucky after the, because... The powers that be had crumbled, had, had been deeply decimated by World War II. So we took advantage of that vacuum. We just happened to be in favor of human rights at the time. And even that is questionable. It wasn't only for everyone. It was for those we deemed to be of equal value. And so, in fact... Not only do the arguments not work anymore, I'm quite disappointed by the gross incompetence within our government. The widespread exploitation across the economic system and a modern disregard for human life is ab abhorrent. Just look at the financial crisis from 2007 to 2009 and the meager aid that ordinary Americans have received from COVID crisis aid. No matter when one's past, each individual offers value if they are guided in the right direction. And modern society is not intuitive, which is why post-secondary education is so valuable. Thus, no person can realistically pull themselves up by the bootstraps today, even, even assuming that it was a slim possibility in the past. As one who sees himself running organizations later in life. I find the current demand on one's life to work endlessly day and night and to sacrifice everything else, a miserable existence. The role of a CEO is too similar to a monarch of the Middle Ages. No one individual should be able to have that much power in a private institution. We've deemed it unpopular in public institutions, now it's time to focus on private institutions. Decisions should be made more collectively among businesses and more specifically among business management. That way, dissent is not penalized and freedom of thought is instead incentivized.
It may seem efficient in the short term to have a vertical managerial structure, but it, is it really efficient if this creates groupthink because people are terrified of being fired for saying the wrong thing? No one should ever have that much power in an organization ever. Pluralism is the best policy for a reason because life is messy and our cognitive abilities are limited by themselves. However, when we work together in a trusting atmosphere, nothing is impossible. Platonic love is powerful and should be normalized and accepted in professional settings throughout this country and throughout the globe. This dynamic between people is at the core of trust and thus productivity. People want to feel proud of the organization they are part of, and this is best exemplified by the dynamic of the immediate team one is a part of. If one is a part of a team that dictates and is authoritarian, they're going to hate their jobs. They're going to hate the organization. Vice versa, if one loves their team, one will love the organization they're a part of. Absolutism creates the incentives that prevent trust to develop because corporate life turns into a winner-take-all war-like experience. Game of Thrones-like. We are above that. We are above that. It's not a war. It shouldn't be war. But that's what free market capitalism creates. Put bluntly, this warlike attitude and culture is wrong. Pluralism does the opposite. It incentivizes platonic love. Because winner-take-all is not rewarded. Trust must be developed. Pluralism incentivizes teamwork and cooperation because an individual's success is dependent on others' success. This is more of a win-win scenario than what seems to be going on. Managers should still exist, but they should be encouraged to guide and mentor instead of gatekeep and dictate. Future talent must be developed because of the natural tendency of life as we age. Wisdom must be passed down to those most interested and talented to take, take it on and advance it to meet the needs of the times they will eventually inherit. This is in deep contrast to uh, nepotism and other forms of um, giving it to those you like the most or those you can control. Because once you're gone, who's going to take over? Who's going to lead the charge? No one competent. And so things are going to just deteriorate. And also, no principle of wisdom is ever timeless. Because... Society is constantly evolving. As new people are born, they don't have any awareness of time before them. So they come up with a new culture, and therefore the culture changes. Preferences change. Consumer behavior changes. But neoclassical economists would say, no, it doesn't. They assume it doesn't. And that is wrong. Well, these are topics for a broader discussion, and I will get into more and more details in future episodes. 
they are important themes that are included in the discussion I have planned for today. Or just up to this point and also past this point. While these themes are important, they do not represent a comprehensive list of all the themes required to help unpack all I have to say today. Words, I will not have enough words to describe how I'm feeling because this Capitol riot deal has infuriated it. It's, it's infuriating because the more I find out, the more that is presented to the public, the more horrified I am. The more I realize that this was an act of war and that there is a credible threat that in a week, Washington, D.C. may be a battleground between these zealots and National Guard. They may launch a tactical attack on the Capitol overturn this election and prevent Biden from taking office. And obviously this will not work. But the idea of it is concerning. So I must try. I must try to put some of this in words and to call out what I think is problematic in our society. So the following is a list of trends and institutions whose status quo I find concerning. Climate change, income inequality, rising authoritarianism via China and Russia, Trumpism, national resource exhaustion, police brutality and militarization, corporate authoritarianism, ad-based social media, the opioid crisis, big tech, Wall Street, the Council for National Policy, crippling student debt, ineffective health insurance, the caste system for minority ethnicities, women and LGBTQ plus groups, the Republican Party, gerrymandering, voter suppression, free market capitalism, groupthink globalization, shareholder capitalization, uh, shareholder capitalism, um, political duopoly, evangelical fundamentalists, the Electoral College, the National Rifle Association, Fox News, One American News, QAnon, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Big Oil, and exploitative lawyers, to name a few. I want us to be better. I want us to be better. I want myself to be better. And because of that, I want other people to be better because... As you improve, it, life just becomes more enjoyable. The possibilities become endless. But the thing is, I'm not sure if we can. Especially under mainstream schools of thought. Some of those that come to mind are neoclassical economics, neoliberalism, free market capitalism, neoconservatism, shareholder maximization, and the Protestant work ethic. Now please understand when I claim that free market capitalism is problematic. I'm plainly saying that much like the corporate authoritarianism or the corporate absolutism that I mentioned, 
Deregulation and a passive approach from the government is not ideal to inspire growth and development that sustains pluralistic, uh, pluralistic prosperity in an economic system. If firms are allowed to freely compete, it would not be civil. In the extreme, this philosophy would mean that the government should not regulate markets whatsoever, that any market that makes profit is a good thing, morally, and any market that does not is bad and should be eliminated. That the markets, this, this, this philosophy believes that markets are perfectly efficient to society over the long term and therefore should be left alone. This is false. Slavery, prostitution, child labor, sex trafficking, and many other egregious forms of exploitative businesses would all be allowed in this extreme reality. However, slavery has long been abolished. Child labor laws allow children to actually have childhoods and sex trafficking, while main problem on the black market has been removed altogether from um, the mainstream economy. Moreover, there are laws to help combat the caste system by preventing employers from hiring on the basis of any phys physical characteristic or creed. But to the degree progress has been made, it has not been enough. Markets work most of the time uninterrupted, and they work really well. But free market ideologues argue against any reform to help fix troubling externalities such as in healthcare, in the environment, and in the labor markets. And then, additionally, as times change and problems evolve and unprecedented issues come to light, these ideologues are unmoving. They stand true to their principles because they think, because they, think they are timeless. And no, they're not. Big tech, Amazon, Google, Facebook, to name a few, have broken, have broken capitalism. Okay? They're so big that basic laws of economics, basic rules of thumb, do not work anymore. They don't hold true. So by calling out these schools of thought, I find them fundamental to many issues I listed earlier. I find them very flawed, and while they may make sense on the surface to some, they operate under axioms that are not compatible with modern scientific understanding of human behavior. Moreover, neoconservatism, which fuels the Republican Party, is rooted in its appeal against the Democrats' decision to take on civil rights in the 1950s. While Dixiecrats were the original unorganized version, many current institutions began to emerge in the response in response to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Of most prominence and of most power is the Council for National Policy. They feared having to share the public square with non-Protestant and non-white people, and so they aligned themselves with big business interests that wanted lower taxes and deregulation. It was a perfect marriage to slowly take power away from the Democrats, and to institute a flawed libertarian economic philosophy and to blend the roles of church and state. Please refer to a book called The Shadow Network by Ann Nelson, 
for more about this history. I cannot re recommend it more. But please do it when you have a sound mind and body because it is awfully disturbing. In the 1950s and 1960s, the top marginal tax rate was around 50% for corporations and around 90% for individuals. So it makes sense why many corporations, many business interests were calling for deregulation and lower taxes. And it also seems like they were successful. Today, the top rate for corporations is 21% and for individuals is 37%. For those of us not well-versed in tax jargon, the top marginal tax rate simply means that if incomes over $1 million were taxed at 90%, and all those from $0 to 999999 were taxed at 25%, then for every dollar earned after that $999,999, an individual would owe the government $0.90 cents and would, able to, would be able to keep $0.10. Cents. This is different from an average tax rate, which takes the total amount paid and divides it by total income. But this is less informative, in my opinion. The marginal tax rate, from an economic perspective, helps convey the degree to which money earned by an individual was exploitative or an excess of the economic value provided in exchange to society via a market transaction. Thus, in order to best understand if a 90% top marginal tax rate is fair, one should study whether people making $1 million or more deserve this money. If public goods and public institutions are required to complete and help a business transaction to some degree, then, it'll, then it's impossible for all their money to be tax-free in this top bracket. If they use public goods like roads to drive on or or public institutions like the patent system, then some of the value earned is due to the efforts of other people and thus should be returned via taxes. Determining which rate is fair will always be a subject of debate, but I am pretty sure that given recent history during COVID relief packages, the K-shape of the economic recovery, the global financial crisis in 2007, the alienation of the working class due to globalization and high income inequality, that a lot of the wealth accumulated by people earning over $1 million a year are getting away with exploitation by paying the current top marginal tax rate. And for clarification, $1 million could be $500,000 or $200,000. I am merely using $1 million as a simple way to make my case. So at this point, I feel like I have made my peace after this terrible insurrection that occurred at the nation's capital last week. These people were traitors to our country, but most importantly, they were traitors to our democracy. Because democracy, because democracy is dependent on the path set by our ancestors, being a traitor to our democracy disrespects the progress made by those belonging to previous generations long past their prime. As much as these traitors were manipulated, the consequences this behavior can have on the status quo society can be so destabilizing that all, that, that all of that which is good and all that will be leveraged to make our country more compassionate, more prosperous, and more plural, pluralistic will be lost. 
Do not, do not misconstrue what I say today. I enjoy many aspects of what our modern society has to offer. However, there are many nuances about the status quo that are deeply flawed. We need reform among numerous dimensions of the private and public sectors of society. Incompetence, exploitation, misery, groupthink, demagoguery, and absolute power need to stop. We need a more compassionate country, a country that truly offers equal access to opportunities that allow people to pursue their, their happiness. One that offers enjoyment and offers and promotes enjoyment in life. One that offers a balance between our responsibilities and our desires to enjoy life. One that also creates the means to blend our responsibilities and our desires efficiently. Responsibility should not be perceived as independent to the ability to have fun. We should not have to spend hours on end commuting to a job when traffic is bumper to bumper and gatherings with colleagues are the only activities that can't be done closer to home. In a book called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, written in 2000, engagement politically and within civic society had systematically declined from the 1980s through the time he published his book. I'm halfway done, and it is considered commuting and suburbanization to be one of the biggest factors so far. Despite being over two decades old, very little has changed since then. He talks about technology in a very similar way, even though Facebook and Google had not yet been founded. I can't wait to read more and should finish shortly. Hopefully, I will soon have a more comprehensive answer and will begin to examine how this research still applies today. To conclude this episode, I hope I speak for many about COVID culture, or I hope I speak about how COVID culture and Trumpism, Trumpism has tested my ability to withstand life today and also made me realize the importance of in-person communication, interaction, and community. I have many ideas about how we may be able to turn this energy into actions that may turn into public or private initiatives. Until my next episode, please stay tuned and follow me so you know what's coming next. Um, in the meantime, stay safe during this pandemic and era of political insecurity and make sure to broaden your awareness of ideas that unite and synergize because this is Positive Sum and my name is Scott Harvey. Thank you.